I'll be honest, I'm not really sure where to tell you guys to open up. We're going to be all over the place. We're going to be in Romans. We're going to be in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. We're kicking off in the book of Galatians like we, uh, like we have been for a while. Uh, so you can, uh, you, can, you can take your pick there of, of where all we're going to be. I guess Romans 7 will be kind of the first one after we get out of Galatians, but we'll be, we'll be all over. Um, All right, so we're getting back into our series, which we are getting dangerously close to. Uh, finishing up, we are very, very close to being at, at the end. Now, we're going to finish up the fruit of the Spirit today, but we've got a couple more attributes of God that we're going to cover uh, over the next couple of weeks here. But we are very, very close. And today we've got an interesting one that's going to make you think a little bit, at least uh, it made me think a little bit and made me kind of consider a few different things. And I'm just going to read the fruit of the Spirit right off the top for us this morning. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, what we're going to what we're going to uh, go over this morning. So Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you've been here with us, that list should be very familiar to you at this point. After all, repetition is the mother of all learning. And my hope is that you've about got those couple of verses uh, down And this morning we're going to take on the final fruit of the Spirit. But it's going to pose a little bit of a challenge for us to work through and, and, and something for us to kind of, uh, kind of adjust our thinking just uh, a little bit. Because we've been talking about this idea of the fruit of the Spirit as being a way in which we can become like God. Now, not like God in the sense that we supplant Him, but like God in the sense that we reflect Him and reflect His character. Remember, we've talked about communicable, incommunicable, the ones he shares, the ones he doesn't share. Um, and so we've been, we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit, saying that these things, these characteristics, these fruit are a reflection of the character and the nature of God. This is how we've seen all of this. This is kind of the essence of what it means to live the Christian life, to show these fruit. Uh, and the Spirit then produces these characteristics within us. And so we learn about an attribute of God, and then we talk about how the Spirit produces that attribute in us to reflect it back to Him and to others. But this final one is a challenge. If our primary focus is that we understand the attribute of God and then apply that to ourselves, this last one is self-control. So can we talk about God being self-controlled? After all, is God self-controlled? Depending on what comes to your mind whenever you hear that, um, it can be odd to talk about God that way, maybe even sound a little bit blasphemous, like God doesn't need self-control. Uh, because after all, when we talk about self-control, the, the picture that is conjured up whenever we talk about this is kind of like the, 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 the devil with the horns and the pitchfork on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder. And self-control is whenever we can shut the devil down and we can listen to the angel. We can listen to the better part of our nature. And that's, that's our view of how self-control works. Which one of these two things are we going to, to listen to? And so if you're going to ask the question, does God have this little devil sitting on his shoulder saying, do it this way? The answer is obviously no, and it would be somewhat blasphemous to even think that way. So the short answer is, no, we can't talk about God's self-control quite like we do ours. We've got to do a little bit of work, and I think once we do this work, we'll see that everything not only holds together, but it really is laid out pretty clear in Scripture. If you'll remember, the very first attribute we talked about 
whenever we began uh, this series way back in the summer, when we started way back in June, the very first attribute that we talked about, one of his incommunicable ones, one of the ones he doesn't share with us, was the simplicity of God. I don't know why that's happening. It's the simplicity of God. That God was not made up of parts. That all that God is, God is all the time. He, is, he isn't made up of, of his attributes like a cell phone, like you put all these pieces together and then you get God. He is all that he is, always. God isn't in parts. And what that doctrine tells us is that, when, that, that God is not at war with himself. He doesn't have two conflicting natures to deal with. He has no internal conflicts. He is internally fully at peace. His attributes never cancel one another out or go to war with one another. He has no dual sides to an argument within himself. We don't share that same reality. We have a constant war that goes on within us. We are conflicted at all times. I can't decide whether I should eat the healthy option or whether I should eat some of the Halloween candy that that made it into my house last night. I can't decide which one of those, for that matter, I can't decide whether I want to eat the Butterfinger or I want to eat the Snickers. I have an internal conflict at all times of which one do I want, what do I want to do. I can't even decide that, let alone the bigger issues of life. I'm constantly at war with myself. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7, verse 15, you all know these verses. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's this constant inner dialogue that Paul is having with himself, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. I want to do this, but I end up doing this. I don't want to do this, but that's what I end up doing. It's this constant conflict that he has with himself. God does not suffer from the same problem because God's nature is both whole and holy. He is of one mind at all times. So can we say that God is self-controlled? Well, yes, we can. He is fully in control of himself. But he is not at war with himself like we are. So this works on a bit of a different level with us whenever we start talking about the fruit of the Spirit being self-controlled. What has to happen is you have to understand that what the Bible means when it talks about being self-controlled. We use self-control in the way that we talk about being self-controlled, in, in three kind of primary areas that is not how the Bible talks about self-control. We talk about self-control as self-denial, as self-actualization, so like fulfilling goals for yourself, and about self-help. And if you read any of those three things into this fruit of the Spirit, you're going to get going in the wrong direction. You'll, you'll miss the meaning. It is not self-help. You cannot pull yourself up by the bootstraps to godliness. That is not possible. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps to be uh, a better, uh, you know, in in a better financial state, uh, to improve your state of life, to improve your family's state of of life within the within the culture, within the within the world. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps physically to make yourself in in better shape and to, to to take care of your body that way. But you cannot pull yourself up by the bootstraps in order to make yourself 
godly. It is impossible. Doing all your type A checklists will not make you more godly. Self-actualization is not biblical either. This is not talking about, when it talks about self-control as a fruit of the Spirit, this is not talking about some sort of blend of Tony Robbins and Joel Osteen that you can just kind of see, see yourself correctly. If you adjust your actions appropriately, you too can achieve any dreams you set your mind to. This is not what we're talking about here. This is not the Bible's goal. Hear me here. The goal of the Holy Spirit is not to help you achieve your goals. That is not His role. The Spirit is not, wor- not worried at all about whether or not you are proud of yourself and how well you've done. Even self-denial is not the end goal. Many a trainer can make a lot of money motivating you to deny your desire for ease and for unhealthy foods and to move into a state of physical training and to eat right. Many people go about life pursuing a certain vision of their life that is built on this idea of self-denial. If you can just not do certain things and you will be distracted, then, then you'll be able to keep your mind on a certain goal and you won't be distracted from that goal. Now, that may be getting a little bit closer to what the Bible has in mind, but it's still not quite the same thing. So long as the self is the goal, the goal is wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, there's certain things that you can do and that you will work on with yourself. It's not wrong to pursue better physical fitness. It's not wrong to pursue all these other things. But when the Bible talks about self-control, it's not primarily interested in you. There's a much bigger picture here. The goal is always about God and about His glory. Listen to how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is a better picture of what self-control means in Scripture. It's not about fulfilling your own desires so much as it is about making you holy and pursuing God so that He is glorified. We are to be self-controlled because we are to be holy. And why are we to be holy? Because that reflects the nature of God. So that's how we can think about self-control, and that's how we can think about God's attributes. Self-control is a necessary attribute of our lives because holy, holiness is not. We are called to be holy as God is holy, yet our flesh constantly is at war with that in every step. Self-control is necessary because holiness is absent. All right, so 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 3 through 10. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So you see, called to his own glory, not called to our self-glory, not called to our self-actualization, called to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
For this very reason, make every effort, make every effort to to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So Peter is not afraid of talking about, about, talking about our effort and our self-control and working towards this. He's not talking about working towards salvation, but look at what he says. He says, it, it, he says that self-control evidences salvation. Now, he doesn't say self-control grants salvation. He says self-control evidences salvation. It is a pattern that we have, as Christians have been called to. Where there is no self-control, we are right to ask the question if the Spirit is there either. He says, confirm your calling and election. He doesn't say earn your calling. He doesn't say earn your election. He says to confirm it by pursuing these things. He's saying, show us your salvation. Let's see your self-control. Let's see your steadfastness. Let's see your love. And then whenever we see that, then we can be certain in the Spirit is at work. As Christians, we can't be afraid to talk about obedience. We can't be afraid to talk about what God has called us to do. We use the language like like struggle and brokenness. This has replaced uh, the the language of, of sin and of rebellion against God. So we use this language of struggle and brokenness. And those things are fine. There's categories in the Bible for those things. But too often, those things just kind of become euphemisms for us to say that, uh, that, that we are who we are and we will be who we will be. I'm just struggling with this sin. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just dealing with my brokenness. And basically what that means is this is just something I struggle with. This is just something that I deal with. It's just who I am. And so I struggle and I am broken. And obedience is nowhere to be found in that picture. It can be a way for us to remain stuck in a pattern of sin without heeding the call to fight against that sin. Listen again to how Paul finishes back in Romans chapter 7, how he finishes, how he laments the war that is going on within himself, how he wants to do what is right, how he wants to do what he knows he has been called to, but he can't do that. So he could easily couch that language, couch that in brokenness and struggle, right? He could say, I want to do this, but I can't do this. Oh my gosh, man, that would be, that would be wonderful. I'm just so broken. I'm just... I'm just struggling with this sin. But he goes much, much further than that. In Romans 7, verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he doesn't stop with, I'm just broken. He says, I am wretched and I need a deliverer. Who will come to my rescue? 
And then once, once he lays that out, he says, the only one that can come to my rescue is Jesus Christ himself. As Christians, we should not live in the, the can't help it. You know what I mean? Like you're dealing with these sins and it's like, I just can't, I just can't help it. Now there's, there's a place to struggle through sin and to fight against sin. But we should not rest in a place of having the can't help it's where I just, I just can't stop what I'm doing. Too often Christians cave and they resign to kind of defeat in this area and they stop fighting against sin. And too often Christians cave to that siren call and they, they do it under the guise of I'm just struggling and I can't help it. When really the issue at hand is that we've not done what's required to stop it. You guys know the story of, of the, the Odyssey of Odysseus or Ulysses, whichever translation you read. He knows the danger that is before him as he's going to sail by the island and the, the, the song of the sirens would beckon him and he, would, he, he knows that he would give in to their call. He knows that they would ruin him, that he would shipwreck the, the ship. And so he takes action ahead of time and he tells his crew, he says, he says I want you to, to uh, lash me to the mast. I want you to tie me to the mast. And I want you to, to, to not listen to any order that I give you until we are past their song, until we can no longer hear their song. And then after you do that, I want you to fill your ears with wax so you can't hear their song. And so he sets himself up for success to avoid the siren call because he takes action beforehand. He knows that he would not be strong enough to resist. And so he's able to sail by because he takes the action ahead of time. His self-control came as a result of good planning, not strong will. Sometimes this needs to be true of us too. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he's in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about lust. And in verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. When we talk about self-control, we need to make sure that we talk about it on the same terms that the Bible talks about it. Self-control is not some sort of idealistic calendar of goals that if you plan them out just right in your calendar, you will be able to create an an efficient system and accomplish your goals. Self-control is nothing short of war. It is an all-out war with the enemy and an enemy that is fully, unlike any other enemy in the world, fully set on our destruction. The old John Owen quote fits, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is the pattern of self-control that is laid out in Scripture. It is not simply a matter of self-denial. It is no matter of self-fulfillment and self-goals. The goal here is not to take things uh, away from yourself. The goal is not even to make yourself better. The goal here is to let go of the things that will ultimately harm you. Some in body, but all in soul. So whenever the Bible talks about self-control, it's talking about letting go of these things that will ultimately rob you of joy and of life. And instead to take hold of the things that will be ultimately beneficial. 
We understand this on a temporary level. We understand how this works here on this earth. We don't drink the soft drink. We drink the water instead. We don't eat the entire bucket of Halloween candy. Uh, Instead, we're supposed to eat protein and salads because that's going to be beneficial for us in the long run. One is momentarily enjoyable, but in the end brings a host of problems. The other has long-term benefit and benefits us in, in all areas of health. Biblically speaking, self-control is less about denial and more about choices. It's about choosing a path based on the faith we have that that path will ultimately pay off for us in the end. It's not about the devils and the angel on your shoulder and you saying, I just need to say no to this thing. It's about recognizing the choices that you have before you and then choosing a path built on faith and trusting that when God says choosing this path will pay off in the end, you then believe it will truly pay off in the end. It's about letting go of one way of thinking and acting so that we can take hold of something more. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says it this way. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. So he's talking about why he's going to choose the way that he's chosen. Not because he is something great, but because he has been bought with a price because Christ has made him his own. And he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. Letting go of what's behind, forgetting that, and instead taking hold of a promise that is before me and straining forward. I love how he uses that word. He makes it clear he is pressing. That word straining, that's the same word where we get agonized. It's an agonizing crawl forward, but he has given all that he has to try and get there. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What the Spirit does is it empowers us to choose with the right set of eyes and to see what that choice truly is. So when we talk about Spirit-empowered self-control, we're not talking about a supercharged willpower. Right? We're not talking about like, All of a sudden you go from being a weakling with willpower to the spirit uh, fills you and all of a sudden you're like, I can just just lift this weight with no problem. This is not like a superhero willpower to do just the right thing. What it's talking about is that the, the spirit opens your eyes to what is true, to what is right, and to what is ultimately beneficial. And then you walk that path because you see the goodness in it. So we're not talking about this kind of white knuckle, I can do it, I'm strong, I can do it. What we're talking about is for you looking at something and saying, I'm going to walk this way because I know there's life at the end of this path. It's a different way of looking at it. Too easy for us to look at that word self-control and think what that means is God makes us stronger to resist temptation. That's not exactly how it works. The Spirit teaches that there is life and there is death in our choices. And then tells us where to find life and where we will find death. 
And sometimes we don't find those things right where we anticipate them to be. Romans 8, 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the Spirit pointing us to how to live. Then once it tells us what to choose, it tells us why we choose it. So it says, choose life, and here's why. It's because our choices have eternal ramifications. We are not making choices just based on how well the diet's going to go for that week. We are not making choices based on how, how quickly we're going to move up the corporate ladder. We are making choices that have eternal implications. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So make the choice so that you obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So an athlete does exercise self-control. Why? So that they can receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So what he's saying is, the athlete works hard to receive a trophy that will rust and will be thrown away. But our self-control has a different aim. It is not a temporary one. It is an eternal one that will last forever. Life versus death. Perishable versus imperishable. This is what hangs in the balance when we talk about self-control. This is how it works in the Bible. God calls us to be holy as He is holy. And He lays out for us the reality of our choices. Choices that have implications today. Sin, death, glory, honor, dishonor. But have even greater implications in the future. A glory that is temporary here versus a glory that never tarnishes in eternity. So when we think about self-control, when we talk about self-control, think less about devils and angels on our shoulder and, and whether or not you can say no to the, the, the fun things and yes to the boring things. That is not the biblical picture of self-control. Instead, think about choices you can make that can either stimulate short-term and suffocate long-term, or the ones that can reflect something greater. A faith that believes that what God says is true. This is what self-control is about. It is an exercising of faith that says, God, I trust you. I trust that what you say is true. I trust that what you said about the past is true. I trust that what you've done in the past is true. And I trust that what you say you are going to do is true. And so it is a matter of exercising trust. Self-control is ultimately about whether you believe God when He says there is something greater waiting for you when you live under His control, when you follow that command to be holy. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's all about our perspective. Self-control is built on the promises of God 
not on your willpower. It is built on the promises of God, and self-control is exercised not by your willpower, but exercised by your faith in those promises. So the question is going to be, what are you going to trust? What is it that you are going to put your faith in? Do we trust in what God has laid out for us? So my challenge to you is, yes, be more self-controlled. And if you want to pursue these temporary things, that's fine. Elsewhere it tells us in Scripture that like physical training is of some value. But godliness has value in all things. So pursue things with self-discipline here, yes. Pursue things and, and watch what you eat and, and, and work out and, and pursue the, the career things that you have in mind and a thousand other things that you need to be more self-disciplined in here. Yes, pursue those things. But remember that what we're talking about when we talk about the, the control of the Spirit and being self-controlled is the glory of God and whether or not we believe what He says to be true. This is the picture that we have that God gives us. And he says, walk in this way. Be holy as I am holy. That is no small thing. You know, you would think whenever we talk about the holiness of God, that that would be one of those things that would be in the incommunicable side, right? Like he doesn't share holiness with us. Yet what we see in Scripture repeatedly is that he does call us to be holy. And then he says, this is the way, walk in it. This is where you are to go. Walk in this way. That you may glorify me instead of satisfying your own desires of the flesh. So this week as we go throughout things, as we consider uh, what is, is, is about to happen in our nation, we consider uh, our own lives as we head into the holidays, the question is not, do you have the willpower? The question is, who do you trust? What vision of life do you trust? Which pathway do you trust? And God says, look to the eternal, not the temporary. To the imperishable, not the perishable. And glorify me in your choices. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that we are a people that struggle to be controlled, a people that struggle to take all of our choices before you, to, a, a, a people that are quick to do what our own minds and our own heart feels right. I pray that you would slow us down this week, that you would cause us to remember who you are, and that you would give us the faith to make our choices not based upon what we feel is right, but based upon what you have told us is true. Father, give us a self-control that glorifies you, that doesn't focus on ourselves, but removes that focus and instead puts it where it belongs, on your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.